Welcome today, uh, once again, to our July 12, 2020 Sheepgate Fellowship Sunday service. Again, it's been a hot two weeks. We've, hit, we've got some rain yesterday or last two days, and it's cooled down a little bit. So hopefully it's been definitely uh, cooled down in the sanctuary a little bit, so a little bit more bearable today. We're going to be turning to our second sermon on Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah in the book of Isaiah. And I'd like to draw your attention to Isaiah chapter 7. And we're going to read verses 10 to 16 together in the 7th chapter of the book of Isaiah. So please open your Bibles with me to Isaiah chapter 7, verse 10 to 16. This is perhaps one of the most important prophetic texts left to us in not only the book of Isaiah, but probably in the, all of the Old Testament. It is crucial that as Christians, especially of New Testament faith, that we understand uh, the nature of this text and understand the context of this text and the meaning of this text uh, and how it was fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. Let's read together Isaiah 7, verses 10 to 16. I hope you have your Bibles open. Read with me. Verse 10. Then the Lord spoke again to Ahaz, saying, Ask a sign for yourself from the Lord your God. Make it deep as Sheol, or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. Then he said, Listen now, O house of David, is it too slight a thing for you to try the patience of men, that you will try the patience of my God as well? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child, and bear a son, and she will call his name. Emmanuel, he will eat curds and honey at the time he knows enough to refuse evil and choose good. For before the boy will know enough to refuse evil and choose good, the land whose two kings you dread will be forsaken. Amen, the word of God. It is an interesting text, an interesting prophecy, and we'll break it down. But let's go to the unreached people group of the, of the day. They come from Nepal. They're called the Brahmin Hill, the Brahmin Hill. There are about 3 million of these people, uh, just a little bit over 3 million, and their main religion is Hinduism. They, are, uh, they live in the Nepali region, or in Nepal, and they, live, and they are unfortunately all unreached. 0% Christian, 0% Evangelical. The Brahmin Hill of Nepal, we would like to pray for this day. We'd also like to pray for, of course, the continual happenings of earth and all the things, the realities that is, 2020. There are various things to pray for, many things to pray for, uh, but we like to pray for specifically a little bit more local today, more than international. We want to pray for Canada, and we like to pray for some of the things that are occurring in the society and culture today. Specifically, I would like to pray for the church. I'd like to pray that Christians of Canada would stand uh, fearlessly, would stand boldly and courageously for the gospel and the truth that they believe, for the Bible that they believe, the God that they believe. I want to pray together this day um, that no thing of this earth would hinder us from the truth of Scripture, that although there will be division in areas of politics, in areas of uh, social matters and, and, and cultural uh, normalities and trends, um, even the conversation of what is moral or immoral, the conversation of what is right or wrong in this world today, that our conversations as Christians will first and foremost be predicated on and primarily propelled by the truth of Scripture and our God. So let's pray today, together, uh, for the nation of Canada, for Christians in the Church of Canada, and for the Brahmin Hill of Nepal. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much. We pray for the text today of Isaiah 7, 10-16 to speak to us 
in a powerful way, in a way that, Lord Father, draws us closer to you, helps us to understand you and to love you more, and convicts our hearts, Lord Father, to be repentant believers in the life that we live. Heavenly Father, we also pray for the Brahmin Hill of Nepal. We pray for their faith and we pray for their salvation. We pray that the message of the gospel will be brought to them in means that only you know and through people that you have already commissioned. Heavenly Father, we ask uh, that Christians around the world will grow a heart for the unreached. And we pray for the just over three million of these people in Nepal that they would come to know Jesus Christ as their Savior and as their Lord. We also pray, O oh Father, for the Church of Canada and for Christians in Canada, genuine believers today gathered in worship, that, Father, all across this nation, from sea to sea, from British Columbia all the way to the east coasts of Newfoundland, from the northern regions of this, of this country, all the way in the territories and Nunavut, all the way down here, Lord Father, to southeast Ontario, that, Lord Father, our hearts are drawn to you, that Scripture is our, uh, our fortitude, that Christ is our rock, and that our truth does not hinder because our world does. Help us, O Lord, to be faithful to you and to your word. All this we pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay, so today's sermon is entitled simply Emmanuel. Emmanuel meaning, of course, God with us. And shortly you will understand exactly why I have named this, entitled this sermon Emmanuel. The late and great Charles Spurgeon, a uh, great prolific uh, Christian of his time, and of course one that I quote often, said of this passage in Isaiah 7, this very text that we just read today, that it is one of the most difficult in all the Word of God. It may be so. I certainly did not think it was until I saw what the commentators had to say about it. And then I rose up from reading them perfectly confused. So, brothers and sisters, if you're sitting home today and you are utterly confused, then that's fine because Charles Spurgeon was confused too. We're going to read this text again and try to hopefully unravel some of that confusion. Uh, I'm going to draw a lot of quotes today uh, simply because I don't have the brain, I don't have the mind to be able to draw out this in a manner, I think, that does it justice. And so bear with me as I quote many people today. Uh, we are going, we are of course reading into a war time, a time of war called the Syro-Ephraimite War. The Syro-Ephraimite War is simply this, it's a Syrian or the Aram nation and the Ephraimites or the uh, the Israel, the nation of Israel, uh, mainly because they were composed of the tribe of uh, Ephraim, right? And they combined together, they formed an alliance against areas and uh, what we call tributary areas of Judah. And so they attacked basically their own uh, and, base, and they were trying to uh, un dethrone Ahaz, who was a wicked king before God. Uh, now, not to say that their intentions were all great, nor was it, of course, condoned by the Lord, as we will quickly find it wasn't. Um, but that's what we're reading into. We're in a time of war. Ahaz is king. Remember Uriah, uh, Uzziah died last week in Isaiah 6, and the successor is Ahaz, who is also a wicked king. And this wicked king is unfortunately in a time of war with his neighbors. Now, here's how the internet describes this war to us. So bear with me. This is the quote. It took place in the 8th century BC, when the Neo-Assyrian Empire uh, a great regional power, right, uh, was existent at the time. The tributary nations of Aram Damascus, what, which I just called the Syrians or the 
uh, Aram, the nation of Aram, and the kingdom of Israel, often referred to as Ephraim because of the main tribe that it is composed of, decided to break away, right? Break away from the, uh, from the, from the rest of the tribes. The kingdom of Judah, ruled by, of course, King Ahaz, as I just stated. They refused, of course, Judah refused to join the coalition. In 735 BC, the Aram Damascus, uh, uh, that that combination, that coalition of those two nations under, in the case of Aram, King Rezin, and, un, and in the case of Israel, under King uh, Pekah, attempted to, to depose or dethrone Ahaz through an invasion. So they invaded basically their own. Judah was being defeated, and according to Second Chronicles, they lost about 120,000 troops in just one day. Many significant officials were killed, including the king's son. Many others were taken away as slaves. Uh, telling of the same war, we read in Second Kings 16, uh, verse 5, which states that Rezin and Pekah besieged Jerusalem, the capital, but failed to capture it. During the invasion, the Philistines and the Edomites were taking advantage of the situation. They're watching this, you know, brotherhood basically attack one another, civil war in a sense, and they decide, hey, this is great. We're going to take advantage of this situation. So they start raiding towns and villages in Judah. Ahaz then, in desperation, asks King Tiglath Pileser III, what a name, of Assyria for help. Now, this was an evil nation, an evil kingdom before God, and he asks them for help. Instead of, right, he's misplacing, instead of asking God, and he asks him for help, misplacing his trust in a wicked nation rather than in God. Of course, yet again, a demonstration of his wickedness. The Assyrians defended Judah, conquering Israel. Uh, they conquered Israel, Aram, Damascus, and the Philistines eventually. Uh, they were not there yet in the story where we're reading, but that's what eventually happens. And Ahaz had to pay tribute to, because of this conquering, he had to pay a price. He had to pay, uh, basically, a fee for the help of King Tiglath-Pileser III. And so what he does, because he has no money, or a lot of it, he takes treasures from the temple in Jerusalem. And this, of course, were offerings made to God. He takes those offerings, that, that uh, temple treasury, and he draws from the royal treasury, right, his own treasury in the, in, the, in the palace, and he gives it to this king, this evil nation. He also built idols of Assyrian gods under, of course, because Tiglath requested this. He builds these idol Assyrian gods, statues of the monuments of these things, uh, in Judah to find favor with his new ally. This was all, of course, detestable before God. And Isaiah the prophet is called onto the scene in the opening passage of Isaiah 7 that we read today to address Ahaz and his faithlessness. Although Ahaz was a wicked king before God, you would think the pattern of scripture is wicked king, God comes, rebukes, doesn't repent, gets destroyed, right? That's the typical sort of narrative for most of these wicked kings. That's not what happens here today. Not exactly, anyway. Although Ahaz was a wicked king before God, Isaiah approaches him, it says in the text in verse 4, in peace, reassuring him in that verse that there is no need to fear the presence of the prophet for the invading kingdoms, in this case, uh, the Ar nation of Arham and Ephraim, or Israel, Syro, Syro, uh, Syria and um, Israel, these invading kingdoms will eventually not prevail, that they will eventually be defeated. But, in, but contained within this reassurance um, is also a heed by the prophet, right? The words of God projected to this king to yield to God, to yield his faith to God, yield his life to God, to turn to God in faith, to trust in him always. 
So with this message on the mouth of the, uh, of the prophet Isaiah, we look to today's passage. There are four things I want to draw out, out of the text today, four simple things. The fourth, I think, is, of course, the most profound. Four simple things, just healthy reminders for you today. I don't assume if you grew up in the church or if you've heard a lot of sermons or you've read the Bible at all, that these, are any, that these points are in any way new and you know, prolific things that you're just learning for the first time. At least I hope not. I don't know your church history, but I hope this is not the case. Four points. Number one, God's covenant always remains. God's covenant always remains. Number two, our hearts long to sit on God's throne. Our hearts long to sit on God's throne. Number three, our faith belongs in God alone. Our faith belongs in God alone. And finally, God's great sign is Jesus. God's great sign is and of Jesus, right? So, point number one, God's covenant always remains. Let's read verses 10 to 11. In verses 10 to 11, Ahaz is given through the prophet Isaiah. Now remember, he's a wicked king. So this offering is, I mean, it's kind of bewildering considering the wickedness of this king that God and his prophet would come to him with this kind of offer. Read the offer. It is an opportunity to receive a sign. A sign from God to show Ahaz that God is still with his people and that he will always remain with his people. Right? Look what, he, look what he offers in verse 11. Ask a sign for yourself from the Lord your God. I wish God gave me these kind of things. Okay? I wish God sent me a prophet and said, Hey, Max, you want a sign from God? Right? That's not what he's... But that's, it's, in, it's, just, it's in, more interesting later, his response. But we'll get to that. Now, in the New Testament, Jesus, of course, rebukes us in the Gospel of John, the demand of signs for the purposes of disbelief. Sorry, for the purposes of belief, right? They say, prove to us that you are the Messiah. Prove to us that you are the Christ. Give us signs. And what does Jesus do? He rebukes them, right? He rebukes them by telling them, this generation will not receive any signs. But in this case, Ahaz is offered a sign, right? Remember, we've already examined and explored throughout our, uh, our studies throughout the course of the year, that God certainly does and can provide signs. We saw the covenant sign of the rainbow. We saw the covenant sign of the circumcision. We saw various things like that all throughout his covenantal redemptive history unfolding. And today is no different. I think it's, a, it's sort of another thing that's added to the laundry list, so to speak. Um, but here he's being offered a sign, but it's with the purpose of reminding and rebuking. Okay, God is not proving to Ahaz that he exists by giving him the sign. That's what, Je that's what they were requesting of Jesus, to prove to us that you are this thing. They wanted him tested. They wanted him to be refined in that sense. And they wanted those signs. But Jesus knew, of course, in that context, that if he provided a sign, the problem that would arise is that they would start believing in and trusting in signs rather than God. So when you read the Gospel of John more explicitly and clearly, in context, the reason Jesus doesn't give signs to that generation is because they fell in love with the concept of signs. And they started looking to signs as a source of assurance rather than looking to God and for assurance. This is a danger that we find in ourselves today too, right? How many atheists ask of me uh, so many times? They say, well, if God exists, why does he show up and show himself? There's a lot of reasons that he doesn't do that. 
So Jesus rebukes the demand of survival, of course, in the New Testament. But this is a different context. This is different. First of all, Ahaz is not requesting a sign. This is God offering one. In this case, God is not proving himself worthy of faith or, or, any of that, or worthy of trust by providing this sign. But it is rather twofold, the nature of this sign. One, he is extending grace to a faithless king in hopes that he would believe. And number two, he is rebuking Ahaz for his faithlessness. Right? In a sense, what he's stating is, how dare you not trust me? Here's why you should. Isaiah is actually speaking these words of prophecy to Ahaz as his own biological son is present in the room, so to speak. I assume they were in a room. Isaiah, of course, brings in this son. Read the beginnings of chapter 7. I think it's verse 3. Then the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out now to meet Ahaz, you and your son. Right? So, Ahaz, so Isaiah is bringing his son along, and he's speaking to this king. The son never speaks, but the question must be asked, why did God want Isaiah's son there? There's a really cool thing here, okay? His own son in verse 3, why was he there? Well, why would God want Isaiah to bring his son? His son's name happens to be Shear Jashub, meaning a remnant shall return. A remnant shall return. So consider this, okay? Isaiah is entering the room of this king to, to prophesy of a sign that is to come, of a child that will be born, that will be named Emmanuel, meaning God with us, that will, of course, uh, and reassure the king that he will not be defeated, that enemies will be conquered. Then ultimately, and we're going to examine this, uh, that there is a greater conquering to come, right? And in the room present is his son, named Sherah Jashub, a remnant shall return. What is he saying there? His son, his presence in the name of the son, is a reminder to the king and a reminder to us today in the heat of the conversation that God is the one in control and the means of salvation. The restorer who will bring about what we examined last week, the stump of Israel. That God and his covenant will save his elect. Right? This was a rebuke and reminder to Ahaz that God alone is the one who can and will preserve his people as he so chooses. It is a rebuke and reminder to Ahaz that his faith is not to be in powerful nations of earth, like the nation of you know, that king of Assyria, but rather in God alone, to put his faith not in powerful nations, but the powerful almighty God of the universe. Now, in the midst of chaos in our own lives, in the midst of uncertainty, in massive loss, terrible events, great fear. And if you want to read more about this, go on Yoni's Facebook page. He wrote this whole thing about what he learned as he lost his house, right? It is easy to forget that God's covenant, in other words, God's promise, remains in your life always, regardless of earthly loss, right? Regardless of nothing in this life, you have everything in the promises of God. Everything you attain for the sake of security in this life can be taken away in a moment. In a moment. But what is given to you by the word of God, his assurance and his promise, will never be taken away. This, wor this world can be engulfed in a black hole 
The sun could explode on our, and our entire solar system could be destroyed. Nuclear missiles could be launched by every world power right now. Everything demolished, destroyed in an instant. Everything you love and adore and idolize, completely gone. But God's promise will still remain. You don't understand how fragile your idols are. And you don't understand how permanent God's promise is. And when I say you, I include me. It's easy to forget that God's covenant always remains in your life. Israel forgot that. Perhaps that's why we keep seeing constant new signs of the same godly covenant appear all throughout Old Testament history to remind his people that God is working and that God is with us. Point number two, our hearts long to sit on God's throne. This is what, I mean, this whole idea is what got us into the mess of sin to begin with, right? Verse 12, Ahaz's response may be of surprise to some of you. An evil, wicked king offered a sign by God. And look what he says. God is like really extravagant in his offer. Make it deep as Shaul. Shaul, of course, is like the underworld. And high as heaven, right? Infinitely deep, infinitely high. Make it that great, right? I'm offering this to you. And he rejects. Isn't this weird? That a wicked king would reject such an offer from a great God. Ah's response may be of, some, of surprise to some of you. But his response is seemingly one, initially to us, the reader, of humility, isn't it? It seems humble in its initial reading. But this is an example of what we call feign humility, or false humility, or let's just put it what it is, or put it as what it is, fake humility. How do we know this? In context, we understand that Ahaz was unwilling to yield his life and faith to God, to trust in God, or to even hope in God. He wanted nothing to do with God. There is no instance in his life where he demonstrated any inclination to be uh, longing for God in any way. This was his way. This rejection was Ahaz's way of telling God, screw off, mind your own business, I don't need you. You have done nothing but bad to me. I want nothing to do with you. It's kind of like this. Oh, so now you show up and now you want to help. So you allow all this crap to happen and now you want to help me? Uh-uh. I'm not taking I'm not letting you take any glory in this story. I will resolve this issue. Be gone. Have nothing to do with my life. I don't need you. Here's a commentator, David Guzik. He writes this. This sounds very spiritual from Ahaz. He almost seems to say what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 4, verse 7, in the three temptations in the wilderness. Jesus, of course, says, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. Though the words are similar, the hearts are far apart. Ahaz refused to ask for a sign because when God fulfilled the sign, he would be obligated, in a sense, to believe. 
He also writes, this was not tempting or testing God to take on this sign in the wrong way. It is never testing God to do as he says and to be obedient. And if the Lord invites, invites us to test him, we should. For example, in Malachi chapter 3, verse 10, the Lord invites Israel to give as he commanded and thereby to prove me now in this. Test me in this. And when you give, shall I not open the floodgates of heaven? Another note to mind is that Ahaz may have grown in bitterness against God over the years as his nation began to politically crumble. For the political losses and strife that he faced, Judah was facing, he started building resentment towards God and bitterness against him. And this is very possible in every human heart. Finally, John Trapp, another commentator, writes on Isaiah chapter 7. He writes this, Here let us each descend and dive into his own conscience. Simple way of putting it, let's do a little bit of a heart check, okay? This is what he says. To see whether we also have not matched Ahaz in his madness, or at least coasted too near upon his unkind usage of the Lord. By rejecting his sweet offers of grace and motions of mercy, by slighting his holy sacraments, those signs and seals of the righteousness that is by faith, we are prone to reject God. Brothers and sisters, we are prone to reject God on the basis of our self-righteousness, self-seeking glory, self-centered emotions and thoughts. We, like Adam and Eve and King Ahaz in this story, in their fall, are prone to have a desire to be the God of our lives, so to speak. To be God himself. What was the temptation in the garden? When you eat of the fruit, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. Only when we realize that we cannot, that we cannot be, nor are we even close to a God, can we realize the depravity and shortcomings of our own selves and our humanity to then be able to turn to the rightful inhabitant of the throne of the universe. Right? But our hearts long to sit on the throne that God sits on. I'm reminded of sports. Basketball is coming back in a couple weeks, so I'm excited because I'm a basketball fan, as you know. And all of you are probably sick and tired of basketball analogies in, in all my sermons. But I'm just going to keep doing me because I love basketball. But when you, when, the reason I love basketball, let me, just, let me just clear this up. The reason I love it, not more than anything, but one of the reasons I really love it, is because how much of an effect one person can have on the whole outcome, right? Like, you, there's literally five players on the court for a team at one time. So one player is 20% of your outcome, right? At least while they're on the court. That's more than any other sport. You could have like a superstar soccer player, right? But if the 10 other guys on the field suck, then there's not, gonna, not much difference there, right? That's less than 10% of an influence or an effect, right? Uh, and also, if you're like the goalie, right? You, you don't score any goals. Right? Like, you're reliant and dependent on, on your teammates. So it's a team game. Baseball, same thing. Everything else, same thing. But basketball, 
everyone shoots and scores, everybody blocks and defends, everybody has to do a little bit of everything, everybody has to help each other. But you have one guy who dominates, who's like absolutely better than everyone else. You have an extremely high chance of winning. That's why I love it, because the stars of basketball are truly monumental stars on their team. Now what happens when you have an inferior player come onto the team and say, hey, Mr. Michael Jordan, I'm better than you, so give me the ball. What happens there, brothers and sisters? 20% of your outcome then goes into the hands of someone inferior. And what happens, most likely? If the inferior player refuses to yield and trust in the better player, ultimately, the likelihood of victory becomes less and less. Doesn't matter if you have Michael Jordan on a team. If the four other players don't trust him and don't like him and don't want to play with him and don't give him the ball, even the best player ever without the ball is nothing. Everyone is in their rightful rules. You then increase your chances of positive outcome. It's not a perfect analogy by any, any stretch of the imagination. But the point I'm trying to get across is, brothers and sisters, you don't belong on the throne of God. I'm not saying that the outcome of your earthly life will be positive when you recognize this reality, right? What I'm saying is your destination will be positive. When you understand that God must and is rightfully on his throne, it is not you who belongs there. Third point, our faith belongs in God. Our faith belongs in God. Verse 13, Isaiah responds to Ahaz's crazy madness, right? He responds in this way, um, taking Ahaz's response to God's offer, by addressing the whole council of God's people. He all of a sudden makes it about all of Israel. Look what he says. Listen now, O house of David. Right? That, of course, is an idiom for the entire nation, all 12 tribes. He responds to the entire council of God's people. And he points out their faithlessness represented through this King Ahaz. And his attitude, the King Ahaz, his attitude was that of his people. Synonymous with that of his people. Hardened hearts, distant from the Lord, faithless in God, and one that was displeasing before the Lord. It is, it is at times ironic in my mind when I think about this. By the way, I do a lot of thinking in the shower. So I was in the shower the other day, and I was thinking about this. It's really ironic, in my mind anyway, when I pray for patience. When I pray for patience. Why do I say this is ironic? It's ironic only in this sense, right? I don't, by the way, I condone the prayer of patience. It's the fruit of the Holy Spirit. You should definitely pray for it. But it's ironic in this sense. If I can't be patient with this one thing, with this one person, with this one circumstance, how much more patience would a being need to be patient with all things, with all people, and in all circumstances. I couldn't even fathom that. I'm so close-minded, I'm so minuscule, that even like one little thing, one little like circumstance, situation, or person that annoys me, or, or one thing that doesn't go the way that I want it to, like, it drives me nuts, and I can't have any patience over this, and I have to literally pray for it, right? Like, a bus doesn't show up on the time that the app says that it should be there, and I get impatient, right? Sometimes I'm driving, and I'm really impatient with traffic lights. Traffic lights sometimes are just too long, 
right? Like that kind of stuff. This drives us nuts. But imagine having to be patient with all things, all people, all circumstances. Of course, I'm talking about God. And of course, God, I know, he's all-powerful, all-knowing. He is God Almighty. God is, of course, of that character and of perfect high stature in all regard. But sometimes we so fail to see the testing of God's patience in the midst of our focus on our own impatience. So here's the irony that I'm talking about. I'm complaining about something without understanding. Like, imagine being God. And let's just personify him for a moment. And he's patient with everything. Like, he has to be patient with everybody. And here's this little, tiny, little, atomic little guy coming up to him. And he's like, help me with my patience with this guy. Like, isn't that humorous? Isn't that funny? In a sense? I think, from God's perspective, it must be kind of cute. Har har. There, there. Right? It's, it, in my mind, I was in the shower thinking about this, and I'm like, that's kind of funny. <laughs> but that he listens is the point that drew me to God that day. That he would take on that ato- atomic level request. That he would take on that prayer and say, let me help you. Brothers and sisters, anytime you pray for anything, just for a moment, consider God's end. And be grateful. So when you pray for patience, pray it maybe like this. I'm not saying you have to, but maybe. Father God, help me. Help me, O Lord, to be patient with this person, with this thing, in this situation. Help me, God, to have the fruit of patience in my life. And Father, thank you for being patient with me. With all of us. Just for a moment, think. Spurgeon speaks well to this point in this verse. He says, Did I not hear someone say, Ah, sir, I have been trying to believe God for years. Oh, sorry, believe for years. Terrible words, Spurgeon says. They make the case even worse. Imagine that after I had made a statement, a man should declare that he did not believe me. In fact, he could not believe me, though he would like to do so. I should feel aggrieved, certainly. But it would make matters worse if he added, In fact, I have been for years trying to believe you and I cannot do it. What does he mean by that? What can he mean but that I, Spurgeon, am so incorrogably false and such a confirmed liar that though he would like to give me some credit, he really cannot do it. With all the effort he can make in my favor, he finds it quite beyond his power to believe me? Now a man who says, I have been trying to believe in God, in reality, says exactly what this man just said with regard to the God Most High. What has God done to discourage or question your heart in trusting in Him, brother and sister? What has He done that He has failed you so greatly and miserably in your life that your faith cannot be thrusted onto Him in total confidence? What has God done to lose your faith?
And here's a follow-up question to that. If you're sitting there going, I can't trust in God, I cannot put my faith in Him. In who or what would you rather put your faith in? Yourself? Final point, the most important for today, God's great sign of Jesus. Of Jesus and is Jesus. Verses 14 to 16, the meat and potatoes of our uh, prophecy today. Ahaz's, Ahaz's refusal of God's offer of a sign is followed by God and his own choosing of a sign instead. So God basically says, you don't want a sign? You don't want to choose a sign? All right, let me just give you a sign anyway, and let me choose it for you. <laughs> okay? Ahaz would never fully comprehend nor even see the total fulfillment of this sign in his lifetime. He won't even comprehend it, really although he will gain a taste of the fulfillment. But this sign that God is about to give is universal in the sense of both time and effect. This is the meat and potatoes, as I said, of this passage and where our New Testament minds are drawn. At least I hope it is. I hope your New Testament attention immediately reads this prophecy and goes, where have I heard that before? Where have I seen these words before? The words would seem more fitting, perhaps, in the New Testament. And yet we find them in the Old, right in the middle of the Old, in an ancient prophetic book that at times can be very daunting and sometimes, in our minds, a little bit disconnected with the New Testament. But nope, it is absolutely connected. The context seems odd at first, but in the grand scheme and understanding of the flow of redemption history, we see that this profound prophecy is found right where it should be. A sign not just for Ahaz and the Israel, Israelites of, the, of his time and the people of his time, but for all people to come. Universal in time, universal in effect. John MacArthur writes on this prophecy. This prophecy reached forward to the virgin birth of the Messiah. As the New Testament notes in Matthew chapter 1, verse 23, the Hebrew word refers, the Hebrew word for virgin, refers to an unmarried woman and means in every context of the Old Testament. Genesis 24, 43, Proverbs 30, 19, Song of, so um, uh, Song of Solomon chapter 1, verse 3, chapter 6, verse 8, any usage of this word anywhere else. And so I've heard the argument, well, in the Hebrew, it actually just means young woman. But in every usage of this term in Hebrew in the Old Testament, it absolutely means virgin. So it's undebatable in that sense. Um, and so... The birth of Isaiah's own son, Isaiah chapter 8, verse 3, we're going to examine that, could not have fully satisfied this, the entirety of this prophecy. She wasn't a virgin. He already had a son, right? But of course, um, this is the fulfillment of the Genesis 3, 15, 16 curse, Emmanuel, God with us, and the title, of course, applied to Jesus. A lot of people have argued or questioned uh, the contradictory nature of the nativity, where they say, well, the angel said, name him, you shall name him Emmanuel. No, 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 it says you shall call him Emmanuel, right? The name is Jesus. The call, the title of this person that you are to be about to birth, his title is God with us, Emmanuel. Alfred Martin writes on this prophecy, it is characteristic of predictive prophecy, predictive prophecy, that it often mingles different times together in one composite picture 
we've examined this before, right? We've examined prophecies prior to this where there was an, a component of the prophecy that relates to its time, but a component of the prophecy go, that goes beyond its time, right? Think about the covenant of the rainbow, for example. There's an immediate effect and influence on the time, but there's also a universal effect of that, of that covenant sign. The sign of the circumcision acts in the same way. There's an immediate benefit, both health and as well spiritual status, right? And dedication to the Lord. But then there's this universal effect that it has, right? So predictive prophecy works in this way. It mingles times together in the Old Testament, right? Again, David Guzik writes on this. This is one of the most famous prophecies regarding the birth of Jesus the Messiah in the Bible. It also illustrates a principle of prophecy. That prophecy, and here's what he was talking about, mingling times together, okay? May have both a near fulfillment, immediate fulfillment, and a far fulfillment. So we're going to examine those things. The near and far elements of this prophecy. The near fulfillment. This aspect, the near fulfillment of this prophecy, surrounds or surrounds the matter of Israel and Syria's invasion of Judah. Right? Remember, we're in the time of war. God would shortly give Ahaz a sign that Judah will be delivered from its rivals. This would be a sign of deliverance. That sign would be a child, shortly born, who will signal the defeat of Syria and Israel as they will be overrun right, by their enemies before this child matures to the point where they can consume solid food. There are two stories in particular in history that are documented for us that commentators note that potentially fulfill this aspect of the prophecy. And so there's a division. So that's why Spurgeon was saying there's a lot of conversation on this and there's utter confusion. But there is, of course, uh, a parameter of that confusion. Okay, we're not like totally lost on this. But there's two stories predominantly that come into play here. The first being the biblical story in the following chapter in Isaiah chapter 8. In Isaiah chapter 8 verse 3, Isaiah goes to his wife, the prophetess, and she conceives a child. And in verse 4 of chapter 8, it says that, the, that before the boy can speak, the wealth of Damascus, right? So Syria and, and, uh, and the Ephraimites will be taken away. This boy was given the name. Okay, if you're ever going to name a, your child and give him a biblical name, try this one, okay? Look at chapter 8, verse 4. Look at his name, okay? I don't know how many times you can read this. This is literally a sentence. It is Maher Shalal Hashbaz. Okay? That is the greatest biblical name of all. If you ever have a Bible quiz, you know, with your youth group or anything, this is the question you want. Isaiah's uh, son's name in Isaiah chapter 8. What's his name? <laughs> uh, if anyone could get that, it's, uh, it's, it's a big one. Maher Shalal Hashbaz. But here's the meaning of that name. It means, and it says just as long in English, quickly to the plunder. Quickly to the plunder. All right. Plunder of who? The Syro-Ephraimites, right? Syria, Israel. They will be plundered. They will be defeated. So this biblical prophecy is fulfilled biblically in the very next chapter, right? In a sense, those commentators would note that. But it's not totally fulfilled, right? There's, this is the near fulfillment component. Now, there's a second option, and it comes from an extra-biblical source outside of the Bible. And the second story points to one uh, of historical records of the Syro-Ephraimite War, in which a young woman of the royal household of Ahaz, of Judah, conceived a boy. Like, very quickly after this prophecy was given, she conceives, and a boy is born, who she names, 
interestingly enough, by historical records and documents, unknowing of this prophecy, by the way, right? Because this prophecy was given solely to Ahaz. Unknowing of the prophecy, she names this boy, of all names, Emmanuel. Unaware of this prophecy, okay? And of course, before this boy can even eat any solid food, the story goes, Syria and Israel fell. So there's your extra biblical right source of a prophecy of the near fulfillment of this prophecy being fulfilled and you also have a biblical source in isaiah chapter 8 verse 3 to 4 and so we have both now commentators will debate which one god was referring to point is they fell and there were a bunch of kids born before they could eat <laughs> the the nations fell so as the story goes i'll leave it to you to decide which story satisfies your prophetic taste but the point is that the near fulfillment was indeed fulfilled in the ways the Lord had, in the ways that the Lord had stated. Now here's the more important part, the far fulfillment. The far fulfillment is this. This aspect of the prophecy points obviously to us as Christians today, um, to Christ and his first coming, the incarnation, right? It points directly to that. The words virgin and virgin birth and Emmanuel should already start ringing bells and connecting dots in your head. It connects the covenantal promise of Genesis 3.15 and the curse where, you know, the offspring of the woman will, of course, crush the head of the serpent to the incarnation of the New Testament in the Gospels. This aspect of the prophecy points not only towards a distant future and an event in the distant future, but one that encompasses things far beyond far and way beyond the current situation of Ahaz and his kingdom. Brothers and sisters, this points to Jesus. It points directly to him. Here's Guzik's four-point analysis of the reasons why this passage points to Christ. Because he says it better than I possibly could. Four reasons, he says. We know this passage speaks of Jesus because the Holy Spirit said so through the, through the person of Matthew. Matthew chapter 1, verse 23. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Point number two. We know this passage speaks of Jesus because the prophecy is addressed not only to Ahaz, but to the entire house of David. Right? There's a universal audience now to this prophecy. Point number three. We know this passage speaks of Jesus because it says the virgin shall conceive and that conception would be assigned to David's entire household. Those who deny the virgin birth of Jesus like to point out that the Hebrew word translated virgin, Alma, can also be translated as young woman. The idea is that Isaiah was simply saying that a young woman would give birth, not a virgin. That's the rebuttal there. While the near fulfillment may have, referen may have given reference to a young woman, obviously giving birth, the far or ultimate fulfillment clearly points to a woman miraculously conceiving and giving birth. This is especially clear because the Old Testament never uses the word, as I said earlier, in a context other than virgin. And because the Septuagint translated categorically the word into the word, uh, the Greek word, parthenos, virgin. We know, and finally, number four, we know this passage speaks of Jesus because it says he will be known as Emmanuel, meaning God with us. This was true of Jesus, in fact, not only as a title, not only as a title. Emmanuel speaks both of the deity of Jesus, God with us, and his identification and nearness to man, God with us. 
Okay, let me let me break that down for you. John Calvin, he is therefore called God with us or united to us, which cannot apply to a man who is not God. It denotes not only the power of God, such as he usually displays by a servant, but a union of person by which Christ became God-man. Adam Clark writes this, In what sense then is Christ God with us? Jesus is called Emmanuel, or God with us in his incarnation. God with us by the influences of his Holy Spirit and the Holy Sacrament and the preaching of his word in private prayer. And God with us through every action of our life that we begin, continue, and end in his name. He is God with us to comfort, enlighten, protect, and defend us in every time of temptation and trial, in the hour of death, in the day of judgment, and God with us and in us, and we with and in Him to all eternity. Right? Brothers and sisters, Jesus is the great sign for all ages before, now, and to come. Not only is God a promise keeper, and one who keeps his covenant and has kept his covenant. But one, because of that promise keeping, who is with us now. And that is a gift that no one deserves. No one deserves this. No one. The conclusion is this. Like in our passage today, the word of God is both near in its fulfillment in our time as it is always so-called. I hate this word, but let's just use it and then I'll break it down. God's word is always relevant to our time. It is relevant only in this sense, and I think this is the correct sense, okay? That the word of God speaks into our times. It corrects our times. It corrects our thinking. It redirects our attention. It reforms us. It refines us. And it teaches us the truth. Because our times do not. It's not the reverse. It's not that our times and our advance in technology, our progression in humanities, our progression in our studies, our educational institutions that make our minds better thinking in a sense, that does not change the way we read scripture. The Bible's clear on this, times will change, the Bible does not. It's immutable, for it is the word of the immutable. It's not the reverse. And it is far fulfilling, God's word, far fulfilling in our time to infinity and beyond, as I quote Buzz Lightyear. Because the word of God is the foundation of all things. It is the giver, sustainer, and source of life. By the word of God, we are born and created. By the word of God, we are saved. Our gospel is the word of God given unto us who came in flesh in John chapter 1, fulfilled the words of God in perfection by coming, dying, and resurrecting again. The word of God is the line, so to speak, by which the souls of men will find themselves either with God or against him. It is the means by which we learn of God and love him in faith and follow him in obedience. So remember today as we close, remember this. God's covenant always remains. God's throne is rightfully his alone. 
God is worthy of our faith. And God gave us Jesus Christ, his son, a sign of hope and salvation for sinners, a son who came, who died, and rose again to save us from our sins and the depth of death as an atonement once and for all, one we could not pay, an everlasting sign of God's redemptive work in us to help us to be with him. Emmanuel, O Emmanuel, O Lord, we give you praise, for you are truly the God with us. Amen. Let's take some time to reflect and pray. And think about what this text means to us and how it helps us to understand it better. Let's take a moment. 